Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Circular Metabolism podcast, the bi-weekly meeting where we have in-depth discussions with thinkers, researchers, activists, policymakers, and practitioners to better understand the metabolism of our cities and how to reduce their environmental impact in a socially just and context-specific way. Today, we celebrate the 40th episode uh, of our podcast by covering an important topic which will confront the promises and imaginary of the circular economy on the one hand and the ecological conflicts that happen on the other hand, both on the commodity extraction and waste disposal frontiers. Today we will discuss about the entropic character of our industrial economy, the circularity gap or rift, the environmental, uh, environmentalism of the poor, and the word movement or movements of environmental justice. To talk about these topics, we have Juan Martinez-Alier, which is an economist that researched and published numerous articles and books on agrarian studies, on ecological economics and political ecology. He has received two big prizes, such as the Leontief Prize in 2017 for advancing the frontiers of economic thought and by bringing together the ecological approaches, but also the justice and developmental approaches together. And in 2020, more recently, the Balsan Prize for Environmental Challenges that once again put forward the word environmental justice movement or movements uh, and is illustrated by the EG Atlas, uh, this growing database of more than 3,350 ecological distribution conflicts that is uh, being built in ICTA UAB. So with all that being said, uh, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Could you perhaps uh, briefly uh, want to present your work uh, and, and yourself? Yeah. <clears throat> well, okay. Thank you. What you have summarized is exactly what I am doing. I am an, e an ecological economist. And <clears throat> in fact, I am one of the co-founders of the International Society for Ecological Economics in the, <clears throat> in the 80s with Herman Deli, as you mentioned, and Bob Costanza, and Anne-Marie Johnson, who died too early. And we were people coming from economics and some people coming from ecology, from systems ecology, from Howard Odom, and counting on energy flows in the economy. And we, the economists, come rather from Georgescu Regan and Kenneth Balding, Balding and Calvin Kapp, who had already died by the 80s. So this is ecological economics. And what we study is the social metabolism and also issues of valuation, which I refer to this later. And I combine ecological economics, or I came to combine this later, with political ecology, which is the study of environmental conflicts. And as you have mentioned, this has meant in the last few years, in the last 10 years actually, building up with other people, perhaps 100 people around the world, this atlas of environmental conflicts. Yeah, thanks. So you have juggled and you have just explained a number of concepts already. So you mentioned, uh, you know, ecological economics, social metabolism, um, environmental justice um, and I'm wondering and, yeah and political ecology and, and political ecology yes. so which one do you think would help us to to best introduce us to your work or with which one do you start when you have to present this complex topic which one do you prefer starting using uh, and why 
Well, it depends on, on the audience, but for the audience of this podcast, which already known the concept of the circular economy, I could start with this because I think that there is no circular economy. Uh, in fact, we know the figures for this. There is an enormous circularity gap, or one could say metabolic gap, or perhaps an entropic gap, and I'll explain these words. We know that the world economy, which is an industrial economy, mostly capitalist, but it doesn't matter so much whether it's capitalist or not, in my view, the world economy is an industrial economy and it's based on coal, gas, and oil as energy, and also on other numerous materials, biomass, uh, eucalyptus for pulp paper, uh, soybeans, uh, boots, and lots of other minerals, especially sand and gravel for the cement industry. So if we count all the materials, <coughs> and this has been done now quite competently by, you mentioned Marina Fischer-Kowalski before, so her group with Helmut Havel and Friedrich Krausman in Vienna, they have been doing these accounts of social metabolism already for about 30 years now. So we know that every year into the economy comes about 100 gigatons or billion tons, which is easy to remember. Easy to remember this year because next year is going to be a bit more as we are coming out of the pandemic. And, and in two years time will be a bit, a bit more. And it won't be so easy as 100,000 uh, million tons as it is apparently right now. And of these, only 8, 8% or 8 billion tons are recycled material, which could be paper, for instance, could be aluminium, could be some copper, but this zero recycling, of course, of energy. Energy is only spent once. Once you burn one ton of oil, it's burned forever because of the second law of thermodynamics or because what would say because of common experience we know that <laughs> we cannot boil water again with the same gas as we have used for the first uh, sort of uh, liter, liter of boiled water so energy dissipates and materials dissipates also so we learn this in ecological economics from some precursors about which I wrote a book in 87, which is called Ecological Economics already, but mainly because of Georgescu Regan's book called The Entropy Law and the Economic Process, which is from exactly 50 years ago, from 1971. So this would be the first concept I would like to discuss with you or to put forward. The lack of circularity in the economy, because in my view, this links with the part of political ecology, with the study of the conflicts, because since the economy is not circular, the, the, the firms, the people who are active in the economy, what they do is to look for new materials and new energy, because they, they cannot use the one that already was produced last year. This is either dissipated, lost forever, or is in buildings, 
in the built environment. Could be roads, could be railways, could be big buildings, could be machines, and could be our cars if we had a car. So all these things are stocks of sort of, of materials, which they when they end their lives, so to speak, their economic lives, they are not recycled. Well, the cars are recycled to some extent, but not so much. So to summarize again, only 8% of the materials entering the economy are recycled. The rest are lost or they are incorporated into stocks and the maintenance of these stocks requires new energy materials. For instance, I live in an old house in Barcelona. Old means 120 years. So the lift breaks down from time to time. Um, and then we need to repair it. Well, you know these things. Therefore, uh, we, we see that the economy is not circular and there is this search for new materials at the commodity extraction frontiers which would be the Arctic, could be the Amazon, and therefore this the is... The sea, what's... yeah, the oceans. Yeah. And so over there, you, you say you have an example in your article, and you mention, let's imagine that we, in 70 years, we, cons we consumed where we extract 200 gigatons and not 100. And let's say that we increase our circularity from eight or 10% to 50%. Yes. That in essence will not really, I mean, becoming more circular will, does not mean becoming more sober in materials and no, having less conflict. because the total amount of materials increases, then uh, this is not uh, very useful. <laughs> so let's talk I mean, about this. If the total yeah. amount increases, then if the circularity, the degree of circularity increases from 8 to 20%, it doesn't matter very much regarding the need, the need, the requirement for obtaining new materials and new, and new sources of energy. And this comes from what we call from, from economic history, from in fact from Wallerstein and from Jason Moore, mm. which were studying colonial history, the, the Europe as a colonial power. We call this the commodity extraction frontiers, which in the 16th century, they, this meant Potosí and Zacatecas and a little bit India, where Vasco de Gama went and, and collected some pepper, a little boat, you know, or ship. He became very rich, but they were not bulk commodities, but not big amounts of commodities. Nowadays, with big ships, big container ships or tankers, with 200,000 tons, perhaps, 200,000 tons, or with pipelines, like the ones coming to Europe from, from, from the Arctic, from Anatolia, from, from Central Asia, from Algeria, all kinds of pipelines coming to Europe with gas or with oil. And of course, the amount of transport is much bigger than has never been in the whole history of humankind, much bigger. So what is interesting, of course, is that already this leads to 
let's say, deforestation and environmental degradation, but a, lo a number of times there's also people living in these frontiers, in these extracted frontiers. And yeah, so yeah. The one is deforestation is one consequence, but also the fact that there is a mine and the, the mines now, metal mining now is no longer done underground or almost never. This is done in open cast, open pit mining. So you need mines which have perhaps two kilometers by one kilometer, the hole, isn't it? Then you have the wasted water, the water which is used to, to take the gold or the copper and so on, which is totally polluted, which is also there. So there are lots of consequences, as, as you say, from the extraction of materials. Uh, but and, and with oil, it could be terrible. That, that I know the Niger Delta in Nigeria, and I know Ecuador, the areas where coal, not coal, oil extraction has happened, and it's, it's a mess. It's a mess for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as you say, so the, because it poisons water, because it, it destroys the habitats, a number of people living there have also, you know, there. this results to conflicts, sometimes very strong armed conflicts, some, sometimes other types of conflicts. But I'm wondering how do you then became interested, you know, from the study of these flows to the actual consequences and to environmental conflicts? Yeah, well, I, because well, I, I was interested in conflict, social conflicts before. But the first thing I did in my academic life when I was uh, 25 years old, I, although I am from Barcelona, I went to southern Spain. I was in England at the time, but doing a thesis on southern Spain on agrarian conflicts, or rather on the lack of land reform under the Franco regime. The Franco regime came to power partly because of the agrarian question to stop a land reform. So we're studying this 30 years after the civil war. So this, my life has been rather linked to the study of agrarian conflicts when I was in my 20s and 30s, agrarian conflicts also in Peru and the history of the land reform in Cuba. And then when I was 30 or 31 years old is when I became interested in, in ecology, but this was because I realized that agriculture was a system of conversion of energy. That's what it is. Agriculture takes photosynthesis and converts into food or fiber, which can be counted also in terms of calories or, or joules, isn't it? So, Agriculture is a system of conversion of energy. So this was my entry into ecological economics. But the study of conflicts, I already was interested in conflicts. And then because of traveling to India and then traveling to, to South America in the late 70s and early 80s, then I was involved in, in this kind of studies. And it was very much influenced in India by Ramachandra Guha and his book on the Chipko movement. The Chipko movement was these uh, women and men which were embracing the trees to prevent the trees to, from being cut, isn't it, in the Himalaya. 
So this is started in the 70s and his book of Ram Gua is from the late 80s. And I met him the first time in 88 in India, in Bangalore. And we both then developed this idea of the environmentalists of the poor because I was seeing the same thing in Latin America. Chico Mendes was killed in 88 in Brazil, in Acre, Brazil, again defending the trees, the rubber trees, against the cattle ranchers who wanted to cut the forest and to burn the forest to put some cows, well, as has happened in Acre. So both in, in many places around the world, one could see this environmentalism of the poor and the indigenous. Could, could you define a bit this. this environmentalism of the poor and is it yeah. in the contrast well, no. of, of... Yeah, you always yeah. call it the environmentalism of the poor and the indigenous because in the address of environmental justice where we have now about 3,500 cases, about 40% the protagonists of the of the complaints are indigenous people around the world, including the Arctic. We published an article a few weeks ago on the Arctic, from Alaska to Alaska, going round through Scandinavia and Russia. And they are pastoralists and they complain because the oil companies or gas companies or nickel or copper companies are, are taking are using the fact that the ice is melting to increase the exploitation of the Arctic. And these people are really indigenous people. They have been there in a very hostile and cold environment for many thousands of years. And they have their own names, Inuits and Samis, many, like a hundred different names around the Arctic. And they complain. So this would be an example of these environmentalists of the poor and the indigenous. But there are so many other cases, indeed, because they differ precisely at the frontiers of extraction or at the frontiers of waste disposal. So when there is waste, solid waste, that's where it goes. And another type of waste, of course, is excessive amount of carbon dioxide. And this we put anywhere in the world, isn't it? The atmosphere or the oceans. And, and they also are suffering from this. So you also are, with this definition of environmentalism of the poor, you also confront very much with uh, Ingelhardt in uh, 95 that said that yes. the poor are too poor to, to be green. Ingelhardt started to write about this with other people in the 70s, as environmentalism was one of the new social movements after 68, so to speak. And then he thought that environmentalism was a middle class. Uh, more than middle class was an, a new movement of some people in rich countries, which were no longer concerned so much. He, he thought in the 70s about the economy in the sense of not the real, real economy of energy and materials, but the economic, the crematistic economy of salaries and and so on. And he said, no, these former students, the 68ers, well, people from 68, they are concerned about um, human rights, uh, feminists, 
and also environmentalists. Well, but this exists. I think it's a type of of, of population that, that exists. Uh, I think that the, the German Greens, for instance, that who come from this from from the eight seventies, they are they are not working class, industrial working class normally. They are middle class, university people quite often, and they are. But of course. Ingerhard said that they were post-material movements. And I have always joked about this because I think it's such a wrong denomination. It is because in the 60s, Rachel Carson wrote about DDT. Well, DDT is a very material substance, isn't it? Then in the 70s, myself, we were all anti-nuclear, or we became anti-nuclear energy even more after Chernobyl or at, after Three Mile Islands, which was 79. So radiation, you could say we don't see it, but we can feel it, isn't it? So radiation is a very material issue. So they were not post-material. What he meant was that they were like post-economic. They were no longer concerned about, about salaries and employment which is also untrue because now, because of the economic crisis, young people are very concerned about lack of employment, isn't it? But anyway, all this left aside, all these millions and millions of people fighting in the world for the forest, for clean water, and for clean air, which are very material issues. So this is the environmentalists of the poor against this view of environmentalism as a kind of post-68 new movement. It's not new, it's quite old, but it has been increasing. So in your atlas, yourself and your colleagues uh, have ca characterized these conflicts by, let's say, flow, resistance form, by impact, by outcome. Um, is there some insight, some synthesis that we can extract from documenting so many different uh, yes. conflicts? Yeah, I think that, well, one thing is the, the <clears throat> which is more from social movement theory, who are the protagonists, which is non, not only poor and indigenous people. I said indigenous people is 40% of the case in the others, but the other 60%, there are many protagonist peasants quite often, isn't it? Or people in, in cities also. Mm. People in cities or could be also scientists and professionals and religious groups in Buddhist or liberation theology in Latin America. So we have like, uh, we are studying who are the protagonists of these environmental movements. And then also we, and we can generalize that all these movements are uh, uh, expressions of different sort of values. So people complain because of uh, subsistence values, livelihood, but also sometimes they ask for money compensation. Sometimes they say that the land or the water is sacred, so it's a religious vocabulary. This is what they call languages of valuation. They are very different languages of valuation and they are not commensurable one languages with other languages. 
they are not commensurable. And this is part of ecological economics, this idea that you cannot express everything in economic valuation, in money valuation. Because if somebody says that a mountain is sacred, it doesn't make any sense to say, what is the price? <laughs> How much sacred, yeah. <laughs> well, you can say it's very sacred or not so much sacred. This is true. But you, could not, you cannot say in our common language is to say, what is the price? It's not the, he has just, or she has just said, is sacred, meaning it's outside the market, isn't it? And, and human livelihood, what is the price of human life? Well, it depends on, on, on it, it has a price in life insurance, isn't it? <laughs> or perhaps in a court case. So that's what we do with the others. We can study now over 3,000 cases. So it's no longer a kind of, of, of discussion of economic theory, economic ecological theory. Is a very practical database for the study how the increased metabolism and the changing metabolism, like for instance with lithium mining or cobalt mining or balsa destruction of balsa trees in Ecuador for the windmills okay, exported to China from Ecuador, the metabolism. And then we can also see this how. In these conflicts, different valuation languages are appear, and how so we are discussing as ecological economists and political ecologists the issues of valuation. So Sometimes you... there are court cases. When there are court cases, very mm. good, even if they lose. But it's good for the brain in a way, even if not all is good for the people, because the judges are going to say something about valuation. They, sometimes they will say something about money. Sometimes they might say that they, this is not a question of money. When there are no court cases, then we have the evidence has to come from other, from other uh, origins, like uh, even journalists or NGOs, people who are explaining what has happened. And so, yeah, you had this uh, famous uh, movement uh, about uh, El Agua Vale Más Que El Oro. Uh, and how, in some cases as well, there is devaluation that changes over time. If, yeah, you, so if you see that health is decreasing, but then at the end of the day, you lost everything that you have, you still are asking for a compensation, a monetary yeah, compensation. I think at the end of the, of the conflict, if you are still alive, because in the whole Atlas, there are about 14 percent of the cases, which means over 400, in which some of the protagonists have been killed. The activists are killed in great amounts in some countries, in Colombia, in Mexico, in Philippines, but in many places. So we have this, the names of many of these people killed. And among these 400, there are perhaps 80 women. It's not Berta Cáceres of course, was killed a few years ago and is well known. Many other women around the world, activists have been killed either in demonstrations or by, by, by killers, hit, kill, uh, hit men, you call this. They are always men, actually, killing other people. Paid by the companies, for by the companies, or sometimes by the governments. So this is part of the research. 
But then Khodichos, as you were saying, if they are still alive at the end of the struggle, either they win, and they win perhaps 20% of the cases we study, they manage to stop some projects, or they lose. In many cases, they lose. So if they lose, they say, well, better money than nothing, isn't it? If they win, it means that they can preserve perhaps an alternative is born from this resistance. So that's what we do. We do like, like well, I call it comparative political ecology. Yeah, Not indeed. case studies, but comparative and even statistical political ecology we can do. There is something very interesting into this. First of all, um, that you mentioned that very often these an eco ecological conflicts overlap with other conflicts, gender, yes. uh, ethnic, uh, social class conflicts. Yes. Is this, w w why is this? Is this uh, because the well, indigenous people because... are also often very, very much uh, put aside by society or how do you see that? Well, this is, yeah, this is like this. I mean, in fact, at the level of the theory, it comes a lot from the environmental justice movement in the U.S. in the 80s, which started from what the U.S. would be minority populations, black people, or what they call BIPOC, black indigenous people of color, no? which in the U.S. they are still a minority. In the world, they are a majority. But in the US, they thought these people were protagonists of an environmental justice movement against environmental racism. So you have an overlap, or now it's called intersectionality, an overlap between being people of color and becoming an environmentalist in practice, at least in practice, for instance, in what is called the Cancer Alley in Louisiana, from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, there are lots of chemical industries. This is a black area from former slaves, and they are really very much polluted by this uh, petrochemical industry, isn't it? And in other places. So when they complain, they complain using a language of civil rights in the US which is socially more powerful than saying we are poor people and we are being polluted. In the US, perhaps they would say you're poor because you want, isn't it? Because if you want to be rich in the US, everybody's allowed to be rich. <laughs> it's not a caste society, but it is a caste society in a way, because being black means that you are unprivileged from birth, isn't it? Therefore, they use this language of, of, of uh, what they call environmental justice against environmental racism. In other countries, would be different. Would be different because the social classes are, for instance, in India, caste, social caste is very relevant socially. And being Dalit or being Adivasi, meaning a tribal. Quite often, demonstrations are made with as Adivasis, as tribal people, or as Dalits with a portrait of Ambedkar, who was the uh, Dalit leader, 
uh, at the time that the constitution of India was written. And so being a Dalit makes you able to complain using a different kind of social language. So there are many variations around the world in this. But it's true that the, the, the protagonists in environmental conflicts quite often belong to, to uh, they are not only environmentalists and quite often they would deny they are environmentalists or communists or anything that can be bring attention to the, to the police. And they feel more entitled to protest saying we are from uh, a social group, could be like Roman, Roma people in Europe, for instance, a minority people. And for the, then was another element that you mentioned the valuation uh, and the different valuation languages. How do we negotiate between all of these languages? Because of course, there's so many different valuation points that you can have over yeah, a material is, uh, and, a, and a place. Well, economists, normal economists, not ecological economists, but normal ecologists, not normal economists, they used to decide about projects with cost-benefit analysis from the 30s and 40s. And this was considered to be an improvement because before that, projects were decided for purely, I don't know, engineering criteria saying this is a nice place to make a dam, we'll make a dam. And then the economist says, no, because make, making a dam, there are also externalities. And we're going to count the economic value of the externalities. For instance, a landscape has been destroyed. We're going to ask the people how much they would pay to preserve the landscape, things like this. And so you would have the costs in money terms, but also this internalized cost and the benefits, isn't it? Both the financial benefits and perhaps also some other benefits like being able to fish in a, in a lake formed by a dump in a river. So you do the dump because of the electricity and there are all kinds of side effects which are also monetized. And then you apply a discount rate that you take from your year or from I don't know where, 6% per year or 4%, which is an estimate of how the economy will grow or some kind of nonsense like this. Because the discount rate is very essential to cost-benefit analysis, but the economists have no idea what the cost-benefit, the, the rate of discount should be, isn't it? And in it influences a lot on this. You can apply this to a nuclear power plant, to any kind of investment. So there has been a discussion from ecological economics on using multi-criteria analysis to say cost-benefit is reductionist only, and is also very invented. It's not convincing intellectually quite often. So let's do multi-criteria analysis. So we have different values, different criteria, and we analyze the alternatives across all these different values. And you can have an algorithm and try to make a number at the end to say which alternative is better or just to frame the question. Mm. 
and then to decide this by a referendum or in some other way, isn't it? But to frame the question as multi-criteria analysis. So here in Barcelona, we had Giuseppe Munda doing this for a few years, and he taught us to do, myself, how to do multi-criteria analysis. It can be highly mathematical kind of thing, or more so, just to frame the question. Anyway, this is what we do from ecological. When we look at these conflicts all the time, concrete conflicts, well, we see the same issue, but a less formal level. We see that many incommensurate different languages of evaluation appear. And we can study in practice what has happened, which evaluation languages have triumphed, have won, isn't it? And the economists try to win always this same. Economic logic is, I don't know, no, they think they are more powerful than other people to decide the issues. And this is not true. I mean, this is just a passing epoch in human history, I think, the power of the economist. I hope this appears soon. So that means also that the evaluation languages from inhabitants need to be heard, because so far, I can imagine that an economic valuation or uh, a technical valuation doesn't really care about who lives. So it's not context specific. It's not has nothing to do with it. So I guess there is a participative process or yeah, something. But if you study these conflicts historically, for instance, I don't know where you're talking from, but say in, in Torino, in Italy, there is this case of asbestosis in Casal Monferrato. There are many cases of asbestosis around the world, many, and the others we have like 15 or 20 in which asbestos was used for buildings, and it is still used in some places in the world. Now in the 30s and 40s, it was realized that this was killing people, the powder of the asbestos. And then many years later, there have been court cases, like in Casal Monferrato. In, so some people have died in between because of the illness. So there was a court case to bring somebody to jail somebody called Smith Heine, who was the owner of these uh, factories. Or if not to jail also, or instead of jail, perhaps to pay an indemnity. So here you have, what is the value of human life again? What is the value of so much uh, pain and uncertainty and, and no, social disaster in the community? And then what would be whether going to jail compensates for the damage or does not. So you have a lot of, in this case, some values are absent. So Casal Monferrato was not a sacred place. Uh, is more like a sacrifice zone, isn't it? Hmm. Uh, so some valuations, values are not present. The people are not indigenous in a technical sense. So it's not a racial minority. So some aspects are not there and some others are there. So, so you can enrich the science of political ecology like this. I'm wondering what, what are your thoughts about cities because they kind of sit in the middle of the network of you know uh, materials uh, going from extraction to, to waste and pollution. 
um, and how do they fit within this econo uh, environmental conflicts, circularity gap? Uh, even if you say that uh, you said that some of the conflicts were actually in cities, how do you see cities taking a role in all of this complex? Network? No, yeah, just to finish the talk, the cities organize the extraction, the mm. capital cities of the world, and the powerful states organize this. But also, the cities are a, a, a place of much consumption. No, no city can live from photosynthesis. Cities live from imported energy and materials, even poor cities, because of the density of population. A city can be defined like this, almost by the density of population. And inside the cities, of course, there are different parts. And so some of the parts are really uh, not only poor, but also uh, environmentally much more damaged. So you get these movements for of complaining, isn't it? Or sometimes in cities you have cement factories or you have metal factories or you have petrochemical industries either in the cities or very close to the cities. But it is true that in the others we have many more rural cases than urban. And perhaps, I don't know whether it's just uh, a matter of sampling that we have not done the proper sampling because I know that more people live in cities than in the countries that in the world. But also perhaps the reason is that cities absorb resources and expel waste. And the rural areas do a little bit the other way around. Perhaps to conclude, uh, I, I want to, if you can give us some solutions or initiatives that you found inspiring throughout, you know, the, these years of looking at this word environmental justice, uh, are you know going from agrarian reforms defense of the of the commons uh the degrowth movement what, what is something that yeah well, these are new movements they are the question is whether the solution should come from the policies or the politics or the policies the state politics or whether the solutions should come from social movements and or, or both at the same time I don't believe very much in, in policy solutions to tell the truth because one has seen in climate change that from the first COP to the 26th COP a few weeks ago in Glasgow, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has gone up from 360 parts per million to almost 420 parts per million. And in your lifetime, in 30 years more, we'll reach 450 parts per million over four. There is nothing stopping this. And policy means talking, 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 and doing nothing. And instead of this, there are movements, which I have studied a little bit, this leaf fossil fuels underground, which I think can be more effective. So this applies to many areas of, of environmental issues. I think one thing we should do is to to get rid of the purely economic discussions and have a much broader discussions with ecological economics, which is useful for this. But this is happening very slowly because even the universities are very slow to acknowledge the, the existence of ecological economics. I think perhaps we will have a breakthrough sometime in the near future, but so far it's not happening yet. 
Um, just to finish off, do you have any uh, thing that you're working on, uh, like uh, a, a new article or a new book that you want to, to work on? And yeah, what, yeah. what would be some of the... Book because yeah. I have already announced this book before being finished, which is a very imprudent thing to do. <laughs> But I have already written and explained this in several places. Like the other day, I was in Rome in this Balsam Prize, and he said, I was, I was thanking the Balsam Prize, and I said I was writing a book with the following title, Land, Water, Air, and Freedom, and the subtitle is World Movements for Environmental Justice. And the title comes from Land and Freedom, which was the old Narodnik uh, slogan, in Russia, but also in Zapata in Mexico, or the anarchists in Spain, they use this tierra y libertad, land and freedom. And they have added water and air because land is not enough. We need <laughs> land, water, air, and freedom. And the subtitle is very clear, World Movements for Environmental Justice. And what I do is to use the elders to explain many cases and then to draw, throw this, I mean, to draw this kind of generalizations we have been discussing here about met the metabolism, valuation, and so on. These two main issues, the metabolism and the languages of valuation. When will that appear? Do you have any idea? Well, it has to be finished first. <laughs> okay. But it might be in 22. Okay. It's Fantastic. a big book. It's a very thick book. <laughs> Perhaps we'll, yeah, anyway, we'll see. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Th thanks so much for, for your time and taking the time, uh, Juan. And uh, thanks as well, everyone, to listening until the end. We'll meet you. Thank you. Thanks a Bye. lot. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.